This town is one of America's untold treasures, and yet you'll drive right by it without a backwards glance if you're not looking for it. While some may think that it might tell the sadder, more morose story of racism and prejudice here in the Garden State, to many black New Jerseyans, and certainly to its residents, it tells the story of perseverance, hope, and tenacity. You're listening to Heirloom Historical. I'm your host, Leslie Sharonbeck, and today we're talking about Whitesboro, New Jersey, the all-black town located in Cape May County. So this month of February, we are profiling black history, and I'm trying to give uh, my listeners some unknown um, African-American history that took place here in the Great Garden State, New Jersey. So last week, we ended our episode kind of talking about how slavery really left an indelible impression here in New Jersey. We were one of the last northern states to get rid of it. We eradicate slavery supposedly in 1804, but due to a clause in the way that we were freeing our slaves, some slaves had to stay enslaved until they reached the age of freedom, which here in New Jersey would have been the ages of 21 if you were a female or 25 if you were a male. And this week, I thought that what better way to kind of piggyback off of enslavement in New Jersey is to tell you a story that includes a little bit of hope to those formerly enslaved that decided to thrive here, regardless of the racialized adversity that they faced. And so I'm going to talk to you about the town of Whitesboro. When the town was founded, it began in 1902 officially. The country in and of itself was in a period known as the nadir of race relations, which is a term used to describe its lowest point. Um, We really had no civil rights legislation that was put into place And many blacks here in New Jersey, as well as in the South, found themselves in quite a lawless place with little to no opportunity to find equality or equity um, within their lives. So you may be thinking, as you're listening, yes, this was something that was prevalent. I maybe read about this or learned about it in history class, but we're kind of taught that this happens more so in places like Mississippi. But just to give you an example here, in Eatontown, New Jersey, in 1886, a man by the name of Samuel Johnson, who was nicknamed Mingo Jack, was falsely accused of the rape of Angelina Herbert, a white woman, and was beaten and hanged by a mob of men in 1886. And that took place right here in my home county of Monmouth. So it just goes to show you that this prejudice and violence really knew no bounds. But out of slavery shackles, two generations of black New Jerseyans began to form communities of their own. Uh, This was a part of something in history called the Black Town Movement, It was sprung up in places like Lawrence, Kansas, Mount Bayou, Mississippi, and right here in Whitesboro, New Jersey. Uh, There were other few towns here in New Jersey that were all-black communities, places like Lawnside and Timbuktu. Um, But Whitesboro was a town that was founded by black entrepreneurs and has a really interesting history and still exists like Timbuktu to this day. So to set the stage... Interestingly enough, South Jersey had a pretty large population of African Americans. By the 1860 census in Cape May alone, 273 freed blacks living and working in the resort area. And it's no wonder Cape May was a part 
of the Underground Railroad. Between 1849 and 1852, Harriet Tubman, the conductress herself, worked as a servant in hotels in Cape May to earn money for her trips down south to free uh, enslaved peoples. And so how do these people get this town started? What do they do, right? Um, They begin to agitate for themselves and they use models that are put forth by other black entrepreneurs. Uh, Probably the most well-known at this time was Booker T. Washington. Washington, um, originally from born into slavery in Virginia, um, you know, he grew up through the ranks and began to endorse vocational training to establish kind of this legacy that exists to this day. And the blacks of South Jersey in particular, they attempt to create a world within a world and a nation that was driven on racialized separation. They were going to form these communities to keep themselves together. So Whitesboro was made up of 2,000 acres of land that was purchased for $14,000, which was a steady sum of money back in those days, by a group of savvy black investors. The main investor of Whitesboro, who it's named after, is George Henry White. And he has a very extraordinary life and career. So he was a graduate of Howard University and was a lawyer and a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1897 to 1901, which in and of itself was extraordinary as a black citizen. While he was a member of the House of Reps, he attempts to end lynching by pushing forward a bill that would have eradicated it. However, in 1900, the citizens of North Carolina were denied by the state the right to vote. And so upon seeing kind of the writing on the wall, so to speak, White ends up believing North Carolina and makes his way up to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he would help to build an economic kind of like a powerhouse or a power base for people of color. So he will go forth and establish a people's savings bank, He starts a land development company where he will help black citizens become owners of land, homes, and businesses. And you guess it, he helps fund the town of Whitesboro. In particular, he has a very um, soft spot for blacks from North Carolina that are experiencing racialized violence. In 1898, there was a race riot in Wilmington, North Carolina, that was caused by whites attempting to prevent blacks from voting through threats and violence. Um, There was a African-American newspaper at the time known as the Daily Record that was set on fire and burned down. And then the mob then turned and went into the north side of town where they attacked African-Americans. An unknown number of them died and others that were remaining black citizens were banished from the city. And upon hearing this, White decides, you know, whatever he can do to help his people out. So he will be a major cog in the wheel of pushing some of those North Carolinians, and I believe also peoples from Virginia up here to New Jersey to these um, all black communities. And he didn't work alone. He had a group of other investors in establishing Whitesboro that were from Cape May City's African Methodist Episcopal Church. They pool their money together. And they in particular are helping to 
get outcasted blacks from neighboring Cape May that were subject to radicalized and, and racialized threats and intimidation um, due to the surrounding white community. They were looking for a place of solace. And this really wasn't uncommon. Uh, redlining practices for property and you know living situations continue well into the 20th century. So both groups, white and these members of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, are inspired by the self-help philosophy of Booker T. Washington. And Washington, as I mentioned before, is probably the most noted for the Tuskegee Institute of Alabama, but um, the citizens of Whitesboro really began recruitment much like Washington himself did. So how they got people to come to Whitesboro, aside from those groups that were facing that that violence, where they set up ads in a magazine called The Colored American. Um, the Colored American was a magazine that really, it's fascinating, and I will link it for you in the description if you're interested in black history at all. Um, it really kind of, there are offices all over the country. Um, there's an office here in New Jersey, and they uh, set up this kind of uplift rhetoric for blacks to really, you know, be agents of change and to start their own businesses and to um, buy from black owned businesses, so on and so forth. So they recruit citizens through the colored American. Um, the magazine was made during the height of the nadir of race relations. And it was really only existing from 1900 to 1909. But the magazine served a vital role in promoting the development of black art, black culture, black business. Um, and so if you wanted to move to Whitesboro, citizens had to be of good character and they had to have industrious habits. And what becomes fascinating is if you were a colonist of Whitesboro, as they referred to themselves as, you would receive lots of land that were 50 by 150 feet for a down payment of only $5. And you had to have a promise that you would fill the land. So whether you were going to farm or open up a business or, or do something of that nature, you had to be an active and contributing member to society. And so by 1909, the town had two churches. It had an industrial school for children. So that's going to be almost like a modern day vocational school where children are learning um vocational arts, and it would definitely help them in prospering and finding jobs and things like that. They also had a railroad station, a post office, and a hotel. And these were all built by the people of Whitesboro. What I did try to find was in the Green Book, which would have been used by African Americans if they were traveling um, throughout the country if Whitesboro's hotel was on there, but I could not find that by the 1930s it had still existed. George White's daughter, Mamie, becomes a teacher in the primary school in 1904. So, you know, White himself even kind of practiced what he preached in putting his faith and even his family uh, in Whitesboro. And the town itself was also located on three of the major railroad lines and continued to expand up until the Great Depression. When the Great Depression hits, um, these communities, much like any other place in New Jersey, really get hit very hard. And so a lot of the businesses close, the town begins to shudder, and um, it 
struggles. Now, Whitesboro today is a success story because it is still thriving and it has two pretty significant residents um, that bring it a lot of clout. So the first is, um, they're proud to say Flip Wilson, the comedian, um, is a resident of Whitesboro, was a resident of Whitesboro, rest in peace. But the other is uh, Stedman Graham, Oprah's partner. And uh, Oprah herself in the 2000s actually gives $1 million to the community of Whitesboro because she just thinks that it's such an awesome, um, uplifting story. Now today, Whitesboro still exists. It is no longer a strictly all-black town. There is a mix of white, black, and Hispanics that live in the area. In 1988, the uh, town establishes a nonprofit called the Concerned Citizens of Whitesboro, where they operate as a 503, uh, 501c3 that helps to promote the history and legacy of Whitesboro through community outreach. They have um, academic assistance programs, they have a food pantry, and every Labor Day, they have a reunion festival, which is really just phenomenal to take part in. Um, in particular, there is one woman, uh, Ms. Green, who really started it all. She has a small museum um, filled with relics and photographs and things like that. And she truly is keeping the town of Whitesboro and its legacy alive to this day. But I think that this is just such an awesome concept, this all-black town existing here in New Jersey in a time when racialized violence and um, prejudice was rampant, there were a group of peoples that were able to survive and thrive and make it at the cost of everything else. And so that ends my story on the historic black town of Whitesboro, New Jersey. I want to thank you for listening to Heirloom Historical. I'm your host, Leslie Sharonback. We'll see you next week. And of course, if you have a suggestion for some history, be sure to drop me a line, email me, and we'll see you back here next Monday.